Well, thank you all for being here today. It's, a, it's an awesome uh, celebration as we look at Palm Sunday. Um, Palm Sunday is kind of a unique, a unique celebration. Uh, it's Jesus is riding in triumphantly into Jerusalem. <clears throat> and it just, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, just doesn't seem to fit for some reason to me. As I look at Jesus' life, I look at how he lived, I looked at what was important to him, because I never saw him one bit interested in the applause of man or the uh, drawing massive crowds. He wasn't afraid to preach it hard. You know, there's one time he preaches where it actually says that they left him in massive crowds. They left so many of them. He looked at the disciples and said, do you all want to leave too? And Peter said, this is how I interpret it. It's almost like Peter said, yeah, we'd really like to, but where else are we going to go and hear the words of life? You have the words of life. So it's a very unique situation on this Palm Sunday. In all four Gospels, in your New Testament Christian scriptures, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of those Gospels telling about the life of Jesus include the triumphal entry or what we call Palm Sunday. Now, there's very few events that all four gospel writers included, but this is one that all four of them included. And we want to look at that, and we'll see that Palm Sunday and the, and the phrase you've often heard, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, or Jesus coming as king, are synonymous. And we want to look at this event in John 12, 12 through 15, and then we'll examine what is so unique about this. It says in John 12, starting at verse 12, the next day the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. They cut down branches. You heard the reading earlier, laid it in the road. It's kind of like the red carpet treatment. Took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, hail to the king of Israel. Don't miss that. Hell to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. So I want to talk today about Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphant entry. Now, why does this moment look odd? It's because it just doesn't seem to fit the nature and style of Jesus and what he's about. We read this in Philippians 2, five through seven, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or attitude, have the same mindset or attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing or of no reputation by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So, here's this Jesus, who never was concerned about the fanfare of the crowd, and he made of himself no reputation, and then on this day, he's allowing the celebration. In, in fact, the crowd was so massive that the Jewish leaders were jealous and angry about that. They were used to being the focal point of everyone's uh, questions and pursuits, and all of a sudden, people aren't interested about, you know, the religious leaders around. They're interested about Jesus. They got so angry that they told Jesus they should shut this thing down. He said, if I told them to quit praising me, the rocks would cry out. And then they got frustrated, and they said this. It's very telling. It's also found in John 12. They said, forget it. Look how the whole world has gone after him. 
Now, Passover was bringing all the Jewish people to Jerusalem, so it was packed out. So you got people everywhere. When you look around at people everywhere, if there would have been a dozen people drawn to Jesus, or two dozen, or a hundred, or two hundred, you wouldn't have used that phrase. But there were so many people out there celebrating Jesus that they said, look how the whole world has run after Jesus. So they're shouting, they're chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed be the king of Israel, which is really interesting. I think there's probably a lot of reasons why that happened, but one of them is, is prophecy. If you're not familiar with the word prophecy, uh, prophecy is a foretelling about something that would happen. And there are lots of prophecies about this Messiah, this Savior, this Christ, this King that would come to liberate the people of God. And it was very important that they fulfill these prophecies because that is the litmus test, the telltale sign that we have the legitimate Messiah here. And so this prophecy, in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there were all kinds of prophecies. Now, a guy named Josh McDowell was an atheist, and he decided he was tired of having all these people tell him about Jesus, so he decided to disprove Jesus, Christianity, and all of that. There's just one mistake he made. The mistake he made was to legitimately examine the facts. After he legitimately examined the facts, this atheist, Josh McDowell, became a Christian. <clears throat> and he began to tell people about Jesus. In a book, which is not fun reading, but it's interesting reading, excuse me, He writes a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it's a very interesting to read, but it's very scholarly and it's not a lot of fun to read. And when you're done, you say, I don't think I need any more evidence than this. But Josh must have thought we did because he wrote a second book called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict, telling that Jesus is who he said he is. He talks about that there's 61 major prophecies, a foretelling given by God. This isn't fortune-telling, this is foretelling, where God speaks to men and women, and they tell about future events that are going to happen. There's 61 major prophecies that must be fulfilled in order for the Messiah to be verified. Now, 25 of them's not enough to be fulfilled, 58's not enough, 60's not enough, all 61. Guess what? Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Now, it's interesting because by what is called the law of probability, the science of probability, that if you would take eight of these specific ones, these specific prophecies, just eight, not all 61, eight, the chance of a single man fulfilling just eight of those 61 prophecies would be one to the, and if you put down the number one and put 17 zeros after it, that's the probability of one man fulfilling just eight of them, one to 17. Well, by statistical standards, that's considered implausible and impossible, and it is by human standards, but not by God's standards. And so prophecy was very, very important to the Jewish people, and should be to us. Does this guy really qualify with these prophecies? So, when Jesus had to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, then that's what would happen, because that was prophesied by Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9. So here's this Jesus coming in in this victorious, triumphant entry 
with the declaration of his kingship. Remember, people are shouting, Hail to the king of Israel. Hail to the son of David, which was a kingly phrase too, because they knew, they knew prophetically that God promised to David that the kingdom, your, your lineage, your throne, there will always be a king on it. And there is, King Jesus. He is of the house and lineage of David. And he will, there's no one coming after him, so the throne is secured right now in the lineage of King David. But when we see Jesus coming in, he's coming in totally different than the normal kings. If you read history, you like studying those kind of things. When a king would conquer a people group, what generally would happen is they would take the king, they would take their military leaders, they would take their governmental leaders, they would take their, their you know, the wealthiest society, they would take whatever, and they would generally chain them and shackle them. And the king would come riding in, often on a mighty war horse, or this is where you get the phrase, a high horse, meaning it literally is a huge horse, majestic and powerful. The king would be on that or on a chariot, and behind him would be the conquered people, the kings, the princes, the military leaders, the political leaders, and typically they were naked because the whole goal was to utterly humiliate the defeated foe. And so that's the way they would ride in, and the whole goal was this. The king wanted to say to everyone by that display, I have crushed you. I have dominion over you. I have captured your land. I've captured your city. I've captured your people. I've captured your leaders. I've captured your wealth. Also, wealth that was plundered would be in the parade as well to show people that you are utterly crushed. And the king's heart was to flaunt his dominance over the people. Now, if you followed Jesus around any at all, if this is your first time in church, you probably have heard something about Jesus and you realize that was not Jesus' style. You can't picture Jesus doing that because it's not his style. So this triumphal entry is nothing like a normal, kingly, victorious, triumphal entry. Now, I have my opinions on some of those reasons why, and you can think them through for yourself. But one thing I found fascinating, I was going back through this this past week or two, is this, that Jesus has not even won the victory yet. It'll be next Sunday that we will celebrate the actual victory where the grave could not hold him and he rose from the dead. So then I thought, it's kind of early to have your victory prayed. And then I thought, ah, but we're talking about God. Do you think God knew the victory was around the corner? Absolutely. It's good to be God where you can say, I'll just celebrate a week early because I know what's happening. I know what's coming. I know victory is mine. I know that we will triumph in all of this. And so here is the victory party a week early. But Psalm, Palm Sunday causes us to investigate what all is going on in the life of Jesus and in this victory parade. So I want to read the closest description I could find to this victory march in the scriptures in Colossians. These are amazing verses. You were dead because of your sins. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. You were dead. I was dead because of my sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Now, that's a very specific phrase. 
And it's meant to, to juxtapose the, the Old Testament, Old Covenant uh, law of circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin. And so here, Paul, who was super Jewish, is writing to this church in Colossae. And he says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God. Aren't we thankful for the then gods and but God and hey God that shows up in the scripture. Then God made you alive with Christ. And everyone wants to skip that because there's a lot of people looking for life, but they want to do it without Jesus. But when you look at what Christianity teaches and you look at what the Savior of the world did, it's always about in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. To as many as receive Christ, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, not just that there's a higher power somewhere, but that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be, does anybody know? Saved. It always has Jesus in it, and this verse is no different. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave. Do we have the slide up there? He forgave. It's the third line down, all the way over. It says, for he forgave how many of our sins? How many? Now, I know we know that up here in our head, but we don't live like it in our heart. He has forgiven all our sins. As you study the word of God, you'll find out that anytime we're talking about the forgiveness of sins, it's always this present progressive. It's this fact that, that God forgave all of our past sins, all of our current sins, and all of our future sins. So you're saying, so you're saying Jesus has got me covered for any sin I might commit today. That's exactly what I'm saying. Amen. Well, but that, well, there is no well but if you want to believe the Bible. It, it's covered. Well, if that was the case, then I could just go live like the devil. Well, if that's your thought, I want to really challenge you about your relationship with Jesus. If that's your thought, that Jesus is so good, I could go live like Satan, there's a problem in that thought process. We ought to say, since Jesus is so good, he empowers me to be like him, to go after him. And so you were dead, God made you alive, and he forgave all your sins. Of course, this is in Christ. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way. Now, he just gave us some information. He said, this is the way that Jesus disarmed the spiritual authorities and the spiritual rulers. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I'm going to share something with you that I've never connected in my life before about Palm Sunday. It's not a new truth. I've never thought it before. I just never made the connection with Palm Sunday until we look at the triumphal entry and we look at this description of what a triumphal entry is. That Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us, nailed it to the cross, and in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. That's exactly what happens in a worldly king He's disarmed all the military leaders, all the powerful people, and he makes a public shame or spectacle of them because the worldly king drags them through the street naked so they can be humiliated. And Jesus shamed spiritual rulers. And Jesus shamed spiritual authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. 
here is the truth that I see connected with Palm Sunday and these verses and a triumphal entry that I've never seen before. I want to share it with you. It's staggeringly life-changing. It's astonishingly life-changing if we believe it and live it. Here it is. What source of strength did Jesus disarm from these spiritual rulers and authorities? What did the victory look like? Because we look at his parade and we say, who are the conquered? And where are the conquered? Well, when we think about Jesus, we often are regaled with tales of Jesus going into hell and wrestling the keys to death, hell, and the grave from Satan to having victory over him to fighting him and coming out victorious. Well, no doubt Jesus did come out victorious and take the keys of death, hell, and the grave and anything else the devil thought he had right to. He took that. But that's for another story. I want us to look at this story. And it's important that we keep things in context. One of the main tools of studying the Bible is keep things in context. You want to know what the whole story is about. If you don't do that, you can go down a lot of weird paths if you don't keep the whole story. Do you know there's a Bible verse that says that Jesus is of the devil and in cahoots with Satan? That's in the Bible? Yes. But when you read the whole story, you find out it's people who hated Jesus, who were jealous of his authority. As he saw him healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, curing leprosy, they got angry that the people weren't going after them, and they said, well, he does this by the power of Satan. He's, he's in connection with Satan. That's a lie. It was really sad, but it was a lie. And Jesus crushed that with a short paragraph about how illogical and ridiculous that was, that he was in cahoots with the devil, that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. You won't, Satan wouldn't cast out Satan, so he again showed his authority. So we look at the context of this, and we say, what is Colossians 2 trying to teach us? What's it saying? It said there was a written code and regulations that stood against us, and there were records that were kept, and, and Jesus took that and nailed it to the cross. And when he did that, he disarmed the devil. He disarmed spiritual authorities. He disarmed powers. You say, well, why? I'm still not getting it. Well, let's keep moving forward. What Colossians is teaching us is that the sign of the old covenant... The sign that you were right with God in the Old Covenant was the circumcision of the foreskin of every male on the eighth day. And that showed you are in relationship with God. But the New Covenant says that doesn't show you're in a relationship with God. What well, does show that you have had circumcision of your heart circumcision of your heart. That's what he was alluding to when he said because of your sins and because your sinful nature had not yet been cut away, circumcised, some translations will use, that you were in your sins. So we need a circumcision of the heart. And that's what transforms us. That's what changes us. And so we start looking and said, well, what's the problem here? And it said, this old rule book of the old covenant it was a source of condemnation for us, and the devil used it to pile up volumes of laws you and I had broken, of righteous rules we hadn't kept. And I want you to hear this clearly. Satan loves, loves, loves the law. 
He loves it. Now, actually, I want to make this clear. He doesn't love the righteous instruction of the law. He doesn't love verses like don't have idols and don't murder and, and don't sin and don't lie. He doesn't, he doesn't like that. But what he does like about it is he's figured out something that God knows that we have a hard time figuring out. And that is we have been saved and redeemed from the curse of the law. You say, well, how dare you call the law curse? Well, first of all, God's the one that called it that. God's the one. And the devil loves, loves, loves it because he'll just keep all the records of every rule you break and every infraction and every wrong thought. See, people say this. They say, Jesus was so nice. You know, we had that mean old covenant, and then we had Jesus' new covenant teachings. Jesus' teachings were worse. You say, what? Okay, let me prove it to you. Don't murder anyone, old covenant. I'm going to guess that most of you here have kept that command. So you can feel righteous. I haven't murdered anyone. But then Jesus comes along and said, you've heard it said don't murder anyone. I say this, don't hate anyone or you've already murdered in your heart. What? Don't commit adultery. Ah, oh, okay. I haven't done that. Oh, well, I say this. You've heard it said don't commit adultery. I say don't even look on a person with lust or you've committed adultery. Oh, okay. And so Jesus is showing we got to get to the heart. It's not just the rule. It's, it's the heart. And so we can become self-righteous because I ain't murdered anybody or anything. Okay, you ever hated anyone? Probably most of us, other than me and Darlene, have hated someone, <laughs> you know. I've hated someone in our lives. It's probably one about lying, too, in, the, in, this, in this passage. So Satan takes the law, and is the law good? Yeah, it is. Is it holy? Absolutely. Did Jesus liberate us so that we could now go murder? Did Jesus liberate us so we could lie on people and get them in trouble? So No, no, but what he's doing is he's saying, let me explain something to you folks. See, you say, well, why did God create the law? It's so clear in the Bible. We muddy it up, and it's so easy to keep it clear. This is what the Bible teaches. God gave us the law to show us our exceeding sinfulness. And that you and I are incapable of keeping the righteous requirements of the law. Incapable. Well, I think I do pretty well. You don't. Well, yes, I do. No, you don't. If you think you keep the law well, you are deceived. You are, you are deceived, and Satan has moved you into one of the most beautiful things he loves, self-righteousness. Because when I believe I keep the law, then I can look down on all of you who don't. Because I become self-righteous. There is no righteousness that yourself can create. And so God said, there is none righteous, no, not one. God said, on your best day, your righteousness is like filthy minstrel rags before God. That's the literal definition of that. Filthy minstrel rags before God. Well, Tracy, you're not making me feel too good. Well, the law was designed that we would get exasperated and said, who will rescue me? I can't keep it. And God said, ah, oh, that's right where I want you. Who will rescue you? Jesus. Who will rescue you? 
how did he disarm the devil? He took away the legal requirements and all the violations we had made and nailed it to the cross and forgave us of all of our sins. You say, how does that disarm the devil? Because let me tell you what the devil's strategy is. He wants to pile up all your sins and he wants to remind you of them. And so you get up on Sunday morning and say, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord. The devil whispers, why should you go to the house of the Lord? You, you sin so much this week. God don't even want you to go to the house of the Lord. Oh, that's right. I'm a good-for-nothing sinner. And Satan has all the evidence to prove it. If I'm going to live under the idea of my salvation comes by me being good and doing everything right, Satan's won. I go to prayer. I need something in prayer. I'm going to prayer. Well, the Lord says, or not the Lord, the devil says, why should you pray? And why would you think you would get anything from God? You, oh, my goodness. I, I don't even have to go back a month. I can go back tomorrow and give you plenty of reasons why God would never answer your prayer. You would never receive anything from God. And pretty soon, we start listening to the devil, and he's got a good list going. He's not wrong about all the things we did that violated the righteous, holy, perfect word and laws of God. And so pretty soon, our life begins to get filled with guilt and shame and regret, and fear, and condemnation, and we don't do nothing for God. We don't have any walk with God, any prayer life that's going on, any faith in our lives, because Satan's power is in the law, and condemning you, and shaming you, and guilting you. But Jesus said, I came, and I took that power from him, and I disarmed him. If you'll believe it, if you'll walk in it, if you'll trust God for it, I disarmed him. Well, how's that work? Well, it works like this. I'm going to get up and go to the house of the Lord today. Well, why should you go to the house of the Lord? You, you haven't, you, you committed more sins yesterday. You ought to be banned for a year. Yeah, man, you know what? You're right. I did. But I got a higher truth. I got a higher truth. The higher truth is this. Jesus forgave all my sins. And I'm not just playing this thing. I really love him. He forgave all my sins. He cleansed me from all unrighteousness. That makes me want to go to the house of the Lord even more. I'm going to go more because I'm so excited about this God who gave me liberty and freedom. I'm going to pray. I'm going to trust God to answer this prayer. Why should you? I'll tell you why I should, devil. Because I'm forgiven. Because I'm loved. Because I'm Jesus' friend. He loves me. He has forgiven me. He has cleansed me, and I stand before him righteous and pure, not by anything that I have done, but by the finished work of Jesus and me simply receiving that gift. Satan loses his teeth when you walk in your freedom and your forgiveness and your righteousness. That's how he got disarmed. He didn't, see, we think he got disarmed, that he's this mighty being, and God smashed him. Well, let me tell you this. He is a created being, and Jesus has utterly defeated him. But his weapon is the law. You say, well, I'm still troubled by that. Well, I'll give you a Bible verse. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 56. Now the good old King James Version. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, 
Where is thy victory? I just want to pause there. All of us got some loved ones, friends, and family members who have gone on. Praise God. Death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? But look at verse 56. The sting of death is what? And the strength of sin is in where? The law. Is the law bad? No. You can read through the New Testament. Paul's walking this tightrope all the time. Is the law bad? Is it sinful? Is it now okay to murder? Is it now okay to lie? Absolutely not. Those are righteous things. Here's the, I want you to hear this clearly. This has such life-changing potential. Satan wants to use the law for a wrong purpose. Jesus used the law for a right purpose. Jesus showed you and me that we were incapable on our best day of dotting every I and crossing every T. And so what we couldn't do, God did for us. He rode triumphant into Jerusalem. He was held king of Israel, king of the world. And when we give our lives to him, we are free, and we are forgiven, and we are righteous, and we are in right standing with God. Not because we had what we thought was a really good day today, nor did we lose it because we thought we had a really bad day. No, it's all secured in Jesus. It's all secured in him. And so now I have to say, please, and I've got to remind myself of this all day, please do not waste another millisecond in shame, guilt, condemnation, fear, regret, remorse. Don't give the devil the pleasure of that. He's been disarmed. His authority power has been taken away, which was to guilt us and shame us and bring all those accusations. You know, Revelation says that he's the accuser of the brethren. He likes to accuse, accuse, accuse. We've taken away his ability to accuse if we will believe it. So Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in victorious, and I want to encourage you to let him ride into your life victorious. He's conquered it. Now, does this teaching make light of sin? I want to say this, absolutely not. Listen to me. Sin produces death, and sin produces decay in your life. So we should want to run from sin. There's nothing about this message unless you let Satan distort it that says, good, let's just go sin. No, Paul said it too. This is a beautiful message, but should we continue to sin that God's grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are freed from that live any longer therein? We don't live in sin anymore. We go after God. So the truth of his forgiveness of our eternal life, of our salvation, all that should make me want to go after Jesus, not go after the devil. So again, I, I mean this lovingly. If you heard this message of, wow, that's encouraging, now I can go live like the devil because who cares about sin? Obviously God doesn't. They've done a horrible job of teaching this or you've done a horrible job of hearing it or something. But I want to challenge you. If your heart says, I can go after the devil and after sin, then please, let's change that heart through Jesus Christ. Let's change that heart that says, I want to go after God. It says yes to God and no to sin. So here's our assignment for the week. We want to set our, as, as we're moving towards the resurrection, we'll be in here next week. There's just a certain energy celebrating the, the resurrection of our Savior. I want us to fill our minds this week with the truths, plural, the truths of our faith. Fill our minds with the truths of our faith. And this one is a tough one for a lot of people. 
It's not an encouragement to sin. It's just, I'm just telling you this. When you sin, you have an advocate, a defense attorney before the Father, and he's paid for all of your sins, and you can walk in freedom. In fact, I believe Jesus would say this as our defense attorney. He'd say, well, Satan's accused me of some things I did wrong, and he's not lying about it. That was wrong. I did wrong things. And I believe Jesus would say this, hey, I'm going to take that to court. You don't even have to show up. I got it covered. I got it covered. You, you can stay home, go about your day, have a cookout, do whatever, but, but I'll, go, I'll, I'll take care of this for you. That's the kind of attorney you want. I'll take care of this for you. And he has. You know what else I know about Jesus? He's never lost a case. He's never lost a case. You ought to turn to him because I can tell you it's just that easy. What? Did anybody get? No one watches TV. Okay. What a righteous group of people. Fill our minds with truth. I promise you this week, man, I hate to say this, I, I promise you, you're, you're going to miss the mark somewhere. And this, the, the, the sad thing, I've shared this with you before, um, God's so righteous and so impeccable and so pure and so holy and so majestic and so beyond our comprehension of how holy and righteous he is that you and I probably do things every day that violates his righteousness and holiness that we don't even have any idea about. I remember, and I shared this before, being overwhelmed because in Christian teaching, there's this thing called the sins of commission. A sin of commission is when you do something wrong willfully. You knew you shouldn't have screamed at that clerk, but you did anyway. You just committed a sin of commission. But one day I'm studying and learning this. There's sins of omission. I think, well, what in the world is that? It's things you should have done that you didn't do. And I went, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I mean, if now i got to worry about not just what I've done, but what I should have done that I didn't do, I'm in trouble. And guess what I need? A Savior. I need a Savior. I need somebody who's got it all covered. Not as an excuse to sin, but as an excuse to, as a right, to live righteously before the Lord. So this week, when you miss the mark, don't take it lightly. Don't say, well, that don't matter. It does matter. We do want to live right before the Lord. But I do tell you, don't waste five minutes in condemnation and shame and guilt and fear and just say, Lord Jesus, that was not you. That was my flesh. I am so sorry for that. I thank you that that is covered, and I am determined with your help to live righteously before you. And he will help you with that. No more despair, no more shame, no more guilt, no condemnation. We are free. And may we enjoy our freedom this week and every day of our lives. May our hearts be prepared to come back here next week and celebrate, celebrate our risen Savior. The grave couldn't hold him. All the power of Rome couldn't keep him in that grave. The strongest religious institution on the face of the planet couldn't keep him in that grave. Satan and every demon could not keep him in that grave. (laughs) 
Uh, we serve a risen Savior. 